Happy 4th of July weekend. Are you excited to celebrate the 4th of July? Now, what are we celebrating on the 4th of July? What is this all about? The Declaration of Independence. Have you read the Declaration of Independence recently? You know, for some reason, I've been very familiar with some of the first lines of it, a few of the concepts in it, but it's very rare that I have ever gone down that I recall and read through it. But before this weekend, I thought, you know what, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read. What was this all about? What was going on in their minds? And you know I discovered something. I discovered that the colonists, it's not just about fireworks and it's not just about American flags, but the colonists had something heavy on their hearts. Look at what they say in the Declaration of Independence. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove these, let facts be submitted to a candid world. All right, so here in the Declaration of Independence, they said, we are under tyranny, we are being mistreated, and we are going to present the facts. The Declaration of Independence lists what is wrong with the King of England, King George III. What were some of the things that were listed in the Declaration of Independence? They accused King George of the Third of arbitrary laws. They said he's, he's enacting laws, like one person in first service said that there was a law about hats and how you couldn't make the fabric for hats, you had to go back to England for hats. I didn't check that out for myself, but these laws are being enacted on us and we have no say about whether those, those laws should be enacted or not. There are arbitrary laws, but not only that, they said there's unfair judgments. Here you have the king who is arbitrarily appointing judges, and then he influences the judges. He has the power over these judges and what they decide. But not only that, if you lived in the colonies, you could not stand trial in the colonies. You couldn't have a jury that was composed of colonists. Instead, you had to hop on a ship. You had to be taken all the way to England to stand trial with a jury who were all from Great Britain. They said, this this isn't fair. We aren't getting justice. But not only that, of this list, and it's a long list and a lot of details in there, they said there's this other problem. There's military force that's being used. He's building up the British army in our midst. Our army is turning on us. And in fact, they're supposed to be preventing the Indians from attacking us, but instead, they're helping them, and they're enabling those who are our enemies. And then... They complained of extortion. They said they're imposing taxes on us that we have not uh, ascribed to, that we have not agreed to. This is all the things that King George is doing. He's arbitrary. He's unfair. He's using force and he's using extortion. The colonists said that they were denied a representation in parliament. They said, we don't even have anybody who can go over to parliament and represent the colonies. They don't allow that. They weren't allowed to have their own meetings to organize government. Uh, Like we said, they weren't able to have a trial by jury in the colonies. They said that King George is holding secret meetings. He, He called together a meeting to make major decisions, and he wouldn't let them know about it. He wouldn't allow them to have representation. He forced obedience to his rules. He controlled their judges, like we mentioned, and he imposed taxes without their consent. And then they went on to say this. He has plundered our seas ravaged our coasts, and burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. 
that this is absolute tyranny. We cannot live under a king like this. We want freedom. And we celebrate today the fact that those individuals were bold enough to stand up against tyranny and to say, we want freedom. We want equality. We want justice and liberty for all. Well, Jesus tells us, uh, so, so again, they were arbitrary, uh, unjust, used force, and extortion. Jesus told us in John chapter 8, verse 32, where true freedom comes from. He says, and you shall know the what? Okay, I want you all to follow along. So let's, let's, let's make sure we're all on the same page. You ready? And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they go on and say, well, we've never been enslaved to anybody. What are you talking about? And he said, anytime you commit a sin, you become a slave to that sin. So he says, there's a truth. And, and when you know the truth, you'll be set free. What is this truth about? And, and if there's truth, what is the lie? John 8 goes on to say in verse 44 that the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. There's a lie and that lie was proposed by the devil, the one who was closest to God, one of the covering cherubs who walked in the midst of the fiery stones. He was in God's fiery presence and he began to do something. What were some of the lies that the devil told? That God's, God's arbitrary. You shall not surely die. He told Adam and Eve, you're not surely going to die if you eat of this fruit. In fact, he said, God's holding something back from you. God is selfish. If, if you were to eat of this fruit, you would ascend to a higher level of existence. You would become more like God. What were some of the other things? Some of the other lies? Lies about his law, that his law was not there for our benefit, but instead was something that should be broken in order for us to experience what, true life, in order to really enjoy ourselves, in order to experience true liberty and freedom. He's just a God who's out for his own good over our good. You can see some of the same exact lies were being told about God. And notice I'm calling them lies, whereas I think what was said about King George was true. But notice that, that some of the same things are being said. Look, he's arbitrary. He's unjust. He's, he, he's using force against us. And one of the lies that Satan was, was portraying was this idea that, you know, God's going to step in and he's going to destroy me. Watch what happens to me. When I rebel against him, you're going to see who God's really like. God of love? He can't be both the God of love and of justice. Just watch and see. These lies were being perpetuated. And, and just to give you a, an idea of how dangerous lies are, how they restrict our freedom, I want you to imagine what would happen in my neighborhood. So in my neighborhood, we've gotten two new neighbors. Maybe you've been getting this too. People from the Bay Area are moving and they're working remotely. And we've gotten two new sets of neighbors. And one of my other neighbors was talking to me about them. He said, oh, the ones who bought my house, he's actually moving away. He said, they're this really nice family. They're from the Bay Area. I think they're going to fit in really well. It's a tight-knit court that we live in, and they like to celebrate things together. Like Fourth of July, they're going to block off the court and have a grand Fourth of July celebration in our court with all their kids playing together. They like to come out in the evenings, and they stand there while their kids all play together. It's, it's a group that likes to have families and kids mingling together and playing together. So I want you to imagine for a second, 
Just this past week, one of the neighbors just moved in. Imagine that I'm, I, I actually got to meet one of them and seemed like a nice person and, you know, seems like they have nice kids and they treat these kids really well, nice family. That obviously, they're loving people, it seems, from the way that they treat their children. And then they invite me to come over to their house to get to know them better. And so Leah and I and the girls, we'd go over to their house and they have a nice meal set out for us and we sit around their table and, and we're there to, to, to come to figure out who are these people, what are they like? As we sit there around the table, they bring out this five-course meal, and it's delicious. It's the most amazing meal that we've had, and, and they're having this loving conversation with their children. I can tell that their children love them, and they're so happy, but there's something in the back of my mind that's really troubling me. I keep hearing screams, and I can't tell where they're coming from, and as I hear these screams, it's, it's kind of in the distance, but it's, it's not something that I can just block out, and, and I, as I'm listening, I I think maybe it's coming up through that heater vent over there, and I kind of want to edge a little bit closer, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that I'm, I'm hearing some sort of screams and, and some sort of agony there. And, and so finally, I, I work up the courage, and I say, look, um, you know, excuse me, I, I hope you don't mind if I ask this. Do you have a horror movie playing in your basement right now? Because I'm having a hard time enjoying this feast that we're having together. And the guy says, well, oh, oh, you mean... You mean the, the screaming that you hear? Oh, please don't worry about that. Please tune it out. Uh, no, 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 no. Hang on, hang on. What's going on there? What is that? Well, 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 you see, you know that we have these three children that, that you're playing with here. Yeah, yeah. And they seem really happy. They love you. We have three more kids. Okay. And those three kids, they've been really bad. Like, you know, they, they don't respect us. They haven't followed our rules. And so... You know, Uncle Diablo and I, uh, we didn't get along for a long time, um, but we've kind of made amends in that Uncle Diablo is down in the basement with our three kids, and he's torturing them in the basement. Can, can you go on and enjoy this lavish feast with these children that are being loved? And, he, and imagine that he, he tells me, he tells you, oh, don't, don't let that bother you. Look, have another piece of cake. Here, look at You're here with me. These, these children are having fun. Isn't this a great place to be? We get to enjoy each other's company and each other's fellowship. I mean, let's just enjoy this. And, and sadly, they've just made the wrong choice. This is a picture that's given of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, that most of Christianity embraces today. A picture of a God who will willingly, unendingly torture human beings, sustaining them to writhe in agony throughout eternity. This is a picture of God that limits us from having freedom. You see, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. You need to know the truth in order to be set free. We learned a few weeks ago that torment involves fear. And fear of judgment specifically, First John tells us. And we've got to recognize the reality of what takes place in the Bible. So Desire of Ages, page 22, says this about our need to understand who God is. It says, the earth was dark through misapprehension of God. That's, that's saying, hey, couldn't really see, couldn't really understand. There's a darkness as to who God was. There's a veil there, as Second Corinthians chapter 4 says, between lost humanity and God. That the gloomy shadows might be lightened, that the world might be brought back to God, Satan's deceptive power was to be broken. So where did this veil come from? It came from the lies of Satan. 
This could not be done by force. Notice what it goes on to say. And, and it only makes sense if you think about who God is. The exercise of force is contrary to the principles of God's government. He desires only the service of love, and love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. And hence, we are celebrating Independence Day on Sunday because the King of England... He sent armies to try to squash the colonists. He sent armies to try to to quell this rebellion instead of trying to win our hearts with love by changing the reality of who he was. Instead, he tried to use force to compel us. And instead, we fought for our freedom. And praise God, we have freedom in the United States of America. We can be thankful for that. The exercise of force is contrary to the character of God. Only by love is love awakened. To know God is to love him. The, the more that you come to, to see who he is, to recognize what he's like, you fall in love with him. You can't help but fall in love with him. His character must be manifested in contrast to the character of Satan. You see, who is it that sadly is often represented as God? It's the character of Satan. Satan is the one who destroys. Satan is the one who is arbitrary. Satan is the one who uses force. But not our God. He is a God of infinite love. So in Luke chapter 3, we find this introduction to the king coming to town. John the Baptist is coming to the wilderness. And in the wilderness, John the Baptist gives this proclamation that was understood to be a proclamation of what was to happen when a king comes to town. Luke chapter 3 and verse 4 says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. How many of you ever lived on a dirt road before? You know what happens when it rains, when, when enough cars are driving over it, pretty soon there's big potholes and it's, you're, you're just taking longer and longer to drive or your car is getting dustier and dustier just because the, the road gets out of, out of control. Well, back in the day, it, it said that they didn't actually fix up their roads until a king said, okay, I am coming to this portion of my domain. And when he was coming to a particular part in the ancient Near East, they would send messengers ahead of him and they'd say this. They'd say, prepare the way for the king. Make his path straight. And then they go on to say this. Every valley shall be filled. So, so the low parts in the road, the potholes, they need to be filled in so that, that he can drive over it with his chariot. Every mountain and hill shall be brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough way is smooth. Let's make a, a straight path for the king to come on. Now, as John the Baptist is saying this, you think he's wanting for the, the Jews to go out and start building a road for Jesus? To actually just physically go and, and build a road there? No, he had something more than that in mind. And notice what it goes on to say, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. He, he's wanting for people to be able to see God, to see the king for who he is as a savior. We've got to come to realize that that's who God is in heart. He is a merciful, loving Savior. So how do they experience this? Um, they, the, people, the people ask him, basically, and he goes on to say things like, if you don't bear good fruit, you're going to be cast into the fire. And they're concerned about that. And they say, well, well what exactly is going to happen? And then they ask him, are you the one? Are you the coming one? Should, or should we expect somebody else? Now notice what John the Baptist says in verse 11. He answered and said to them, oh, sorry, before we get there. Okay, so we're going to, this is actually at the very end he said that. So 
leading up to that, they're, they're convicted. They're saying, we want to be baptized. We want to experience that repentance. What does repentance look like? What do these straight roads look like? And John the Baptist unpacks that for them. Verse 11, he answered and said to them, if you have two tunics, if you have two outer garments, if you have two coats, let him give to he who has none. And if you have food, let him do likewise. Share with the people around you. You want to know what it looks like to make a straight road in your heart to be able to see who God is, to be able to have the deceptions removed? Share. Share with the people around you. Take your coat off and give it to somebody in need. Take the food that you have and share with somebody in need. This is what it looks like to make a straight path for the king to come. Verse 12. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? I wish that tax collectors would say that today, don't you? <laughs> and he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed to you. So stop cheating people. Stop acting in such a way that you're hampering relationships by using your authority in order to be able to mistreat somebody else. Verse 14, likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, and what shall we do? That's a pretty amazing thing. Even the soldiers are coming to him. And what did he have to say to the soldiers? Do not intimidate anyone. Stop acting like you've got the authority. Stop walking around and intimidating people by your use of force or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. This is the picture of what John the Baptist says. This is what it's like to make a straight path for the king to come so that you can see the God of salvation. But then he goes on to say this. When they ask if he's the one, he said, I indeed baptize you with water. But one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That sounds good. And fire? Uh, Hang on, that gets a little scary, right? It goes on to say, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Aha! See? There it is. There's who Jesus really is. He is going to come back one day and torture people in flames. We've been looking at the third angel's message in Revelation chapter 14 that says that there's going to be those who receive the mark of the beast who are tortured, tormented, it says, with fire and brimstone in the presence of the Lamb and in the presence of the angels. And we've been diving into that saying this is here as a a clear warning in Scripture. How is this the gospel? How is this good news? And we saw a few weeks ago that the fact is that torment is caused by what? Do you remember 1 John? By fear. 1 John says that there's no fear in love. For perfect love casts out all fear. And torment involves the fear of punishment. This fear of a God who is going to come back to destroy me. A God who is not my Savior. Two weeks ago, we looked at something else about fire in the Bible. We saw that that fire is described in the Bible in Mount Sinai. It says that he gave his fiery law. So what's described as fire in the Bible? His law. Not only that, we saw that his glory was described as a consuming fire on Mount Mount Sinai that the Israelites were, were intimidated to look at even. And they asked Moses to go there and not themselves. And then we saw that his love is a very flame of Yahweh in Song of Solomon chapter 8. His love is like a a consuming fire that is stronger than death. And then we saw that God himself is described as a consuming fire. 
And as we talked about that, we said each of these things are described like a mirror. The law, James says, is like a mirror. And when you look in the mirror and you say, oh, what? hang on. I really didn't get that out of my teeth before. Oh, man, that's embarrassing. The law helps us to see what we actually really look like. And similarly, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that when we look at the glory of God, by beholding, we are transformed as looking in a mirror. When we look, we're changed by looking to Jesus. The same way in 2 Corinthians chapter, or 1 Corinthians chapter 13, in the love chapter, it says that we know in part, but then we will know fully. We see as in a mirror dimly lit, but then face to face. You know, now our mirrors are usually always really shiny and nice. But back in the day, mirrors were nothing like this. It was difficult to see your reflection in them. And the Bible uses this idea of fire and of a mirror to give this picture that when we come in contact with a selfless God, a God of infinite love, that it reacts like fire within us, that it reacts like a mirror. It reveals to us that something's got to change in me when I looked and I see how incredibly beautiful he is. So what about, um, and here we have the, the law is a mirror that reveals my sin. It's a mirror that transforms. It's a mirror that lets me know that I'm fully known and I'm also fully loved. And God is described as a refining fire himself. So when it says he's coming with this unquenchable fire, is that something that Jesus has already done or is this just something that's going to take place in the future? Well, I want to propose to you today that I believe that that this is something that God is actively doing and has already done in a very vivid and clear way in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2. You remember what happened? The disciples, Jesus has been crucified. He's risen from the dead. After 40 days, he ascended into heaven. And for the next 10 days, what are the disciples doing? They're praying in the upper room, asking for God to fulfill his promise of sending the Holy Spirit. At the end of that 10 days, the room is shaken, and there's a mighty wind that comes in there. And Acts 2 verse 3 says, Then there appeared to them divided tongues of what? You guys aren't listening again. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one sat upon each of them, literally like tongues, tongues that are in your mouth is the word in Greek, of fire resting above each head. So here you see that Jesus is already fulfilling this promise because right after this it says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then each of them gave utterance of the gospel in a variety of different languages. And it lists all these different languages. And the people come together and they're like, what's going on here? We hear them speaking in our language, our It it makes sense to us. What's happening? Jesus coming with fire is revelatory. Just like looking in that mirror is revelatory to who we are. That baptism of fire is a revealing aspect that, that helps us to recognize what's going on in our hearts. We need a baptism of fire. Notice what happens in Acts chapter 2. Peter is talking to them, and this is what Peter goes on to say. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter's got a tongue of fire. He's like, hey, here's the deal. Look in the mirror. You crucified the one who is now king of kings in heaven. How do you think that would make you feel? (laughs) not knowing the reality of who Jesus is, just to hear you killed the one who's king of kings and he's now on the throne. And that's why these things are happening. I'd be terrified. But Jesus sent them first to Jerusalem in order to tell his greatest enemies the reality of what comes next. Verse 37 goes on. 
of the fact that when he died on the cross, that was what was to bring about salvation for even those who were the ones who were crucifying him. You see, unlike that King George III who sent armies to try to crush the rebellion, Jesus came to the rebellious planet. And we're told by Paul that while we were still enemies, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He laid down his life in selfless love. And he said, this is the way that I'm winning back my kingdom. I want you to know who I am. I'm taking all of your sin, all of your guilt, all of your shame. You can witness and see what takes place as a result of sin. And as that sin crushes out my life and I lay down my life for you, I'm establishing a kingdom of freedom and love throughout eternity. Okay, there should be some rejoicing in the fact that this is who Jesus is. You know that that we're told actually that it is a sin to remain unexcited about Jesus on the cross. And some of you are falling asleep right now thinking about Jesus on the cross. We've got to re-envision this. We've got to recognize the fact that, that the God of the universe, the one who had all the power, who had all the armies, who could have sent all the force in the world, he came and was born in a manger. He came and he walked among us. He came to reveal who the Father is, and then he laid down his life for you. This is how power and authority are established in the universe throughout eternity. This is what will bring us freedom throughout eternity, that God loves you more than his own existence. And so in Acts chapter 2, when they hear this, it says this, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what should we do? This is horrendous. We just killed the king and now he's in heaven. We're in big trouble. But thankfully, Peter goes on to say, Simply repent for the promise, this promised Holy Spirit that we have received, his disciples, it's for you too. It's for you, the ones that crucified him, the ones that are looking in the mirror and recognizing the problem. We look and we see, ah, there's a lot of problems. And then we realize as we look that he's a God of infinite mercy and love who's already forgiven us on the cross in Jesus Christ. And the result of that was baptisms, 3,000 baptisms, but notice what they do. Now, all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. John the Baptist had encouraged this at the beginning, but now it's actually taking place in hearts through the baptism of the Holy Spirit as they see that they have crucified Jesus, that their sins have put him there. And as you and I mourn for our sin is what placed Jesus on the cross. It's going to open up our hearts as a flood to care for the people around us, to care for the needs, to care for what people are going through around us. Isaiah thirty-three seventeen promises you and me this. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. You're going to see Jesus in all of his beauty, in all of his glory. It's going to be revealed to you. Is that good news? It is good news. But look at how Isaiah describes this. It's good news for those of us who are willing now to begin to open our eyes to this infinite God of love, who are willing to open our hearts now to allow him to prepare a way, uh, to, to prepare a way in our hearts so that he can come. But look at what Isaiah 33 describes. Now, this is back in verse 10. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. Sounds really good. He's going to be lifted up. Jesus said, I, if I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. 
So, so God's going to be exalted. He's going to be lifted up. And as he's exalted and lifted up and people are able to see him, what takes place? Verse 11, you will conceive chaff. You will bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire will devour you. You remember how John the Baptist had said, hey, he's going to come with his winnowing fan and he's going to burn up the chaff. The stubble is going to be burned up from his threshing floor. This is the picture that we can choose to allow the rock to change us or we can choose to be broken by the rock in the end. We can choose day by day to come encounter with this God of beautiful, infinite mercy and grace. Or when we encounter that and we have all of this unresolved shame and guilt in our hearts from our sins that are unconfessed and undealt with, that emotional trauma will be too much to bear. And if we question that, we just have to look at the Garden of Gethsemane and see what happened to Jesus. He fell dying in the Garden of Gethsemane, having accepted the shame and the guilt from you and me. He sweat droplets of blood. He said, Father, let this cup pass from me as he took that shame and that guilt upon himself. But thankfully, this isn't the only picture, but I want you to notice before we move on that this coming encounter in in contact with Jesus, notice where the destruction comes from. Where does the fire come from? Your breath as fire shall devour you. Your, your own breath will devour you. Your, your breath will be like a fire. And Jesus says in the judgment, you'll be judged by every idle word that you have spoken. It's like God doesn't even have to say a thing. He simply reveals his infinite love. And in that moment, everything comes back crashing into our conscience of every wrong act, everything that we've done that is contrary to this infinite God of love. And it's too much for us to be able to handle. Ezekiel 28, talking about Satan himself, the one who was walking among those fiery stones. He says, because of the multitude of your trade, you have corrupted yourself and spoiled your beauty. And then he goes on to say this, you're going to, uh, because of this, I'm going to call fire out from your midst to destroy you and you're going to become ashes. It's going to come out from yourself and it's going to destroy you. You're going to become ashes and the devil will no longer exist throughout eternity. The good news is that the king is setting up a kingdom of peace and of selfless love that he wants you and me to be a part of throughout all eternity. Is that good news? No more wars, no more hatred, no more people talking bad about you. A kingdom where everyone is looking out for the good of everyone else. Verse 12 says, And the people shall be like the burnings of lime, like thorns cut up, they shall be burned in the fire. And we see in the Bible that fire is revelatory. It impacts our hearts. It's a picture of how seeing God's glory impacts our hearts. But then we keep reading. Verse 14. I love this. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Where are the sinners? In Zion, all right? So these are the the people who have been saying, yeah, I'm a part of, I follow Jesus. I wear a Jesus t-shirt. I have a Jesus necklace on. Like, I'm part of following Jesus. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites, those who are Christians in name only, those who are in Zion, but they're hypocrites. They're pretending. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire. Who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burnings? Who's going to burn forever? It's the question they're asking. Who is it that's going to burn forever? The answer, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. He who despises the gain 
of oppressions. He, he who makes straight roads for the king. He who builds up the, the low parts and, and moves down the mountains. Who prepares a way in their heart to see this God of infinite love. To begin to recognize him for who he is today. So that we can handle seeing him face to face on that day. I love this, these, these phrases. There's so much in here, but this one speaks uprightly. That word for uprightness is the same one that's used in Psalm 99 verse 4 to describe the king's strength and lo- the king is to describe what makes the king powerful. Notice this. It says, the king's strength also loves what? Justice. It says the king's strength loves justice. Justice is crucial to his kingdom. Then what does it say? You have established what? You have established equity. That's the same exact word in Isaiah 33 for those who speak uprightly. Equity is something that is a part of God's kingdom. That is something that his throne is based upon. Equity is allowing for the different life experiences of of people. You look at, I can be so thankful. You can be so thankful that we have a judge who judges us not based upon the level that we have arrived at but based upon our life experience and where we've come from, the light that was given to us, our life experiences. And friends, you and I need to have a lot more equity for the people around us to recognize that their beginning and our beginning was a little bit different. And they may need more help. I may need to be there for them. That is the example that John the Baptist gave. When somebody doesn't have a tunic, give them the tunic. When somebody doesn't have enough food, Give them the food. Make sure that you are opening your heart for justice and equity. You have exercised justice and righteousness. And it keeps going. Who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes. So there's a picture. Somebody is, is coming up to, to this individual and, and saying, okay, just, just take this money and then win the case for me or, or work this out for me. Trying to bribe somebody. And this person just immediately shakes their hand saying, No. I won't take money in order to be able to win the case. And sadly, we see, even in our beautiful free society here in the United States of America, that people with money in trial tend to get off the hook. Is that true? I think we've seen it just recently. We see the fact that people who have enough money to hire a lawyer who's able to do a good enough job are able to get off easier than the person who can only afford, afford to have the public defender take care of them. He who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed. Not even listening. I'm not even going to listen to any idea about something that might oppress or hurt somebody else. I'm not even going to listen to any idea about something that is going to produce blood in somebody else's life. That's going to hurt them. And shuts his eyes from seeing evil. I'm thinking... Doing this might be a little hard to watch pretty much anything today that's produced by almost anybody. I mean, there's, we have a YouTube channel that hopefully doesn't have a lot of evil on it, but there's a lot of things out there that we watch that are not tending to replicate the character of Jesus in us. Who's going to burn forever? Those who shut their eyes from seeing evil. Those who stop their ears from hearing about bloodshed. Those who are concerned about the needs of others, those who are concerned about making sure that there is equality and justice for all. You know, the Declaration of Independence starts off with this beautiful line. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident. This is obvious. It should be something that we all recognize. It's innate in us that all men are created equal. 
Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> the reality that every human being, they know it deep down in their core, that we're all equal. We're all in this together. We are one human family, that nobody is better than anybody else. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And friends, I celebrate 4th of July because of this declaration of independence, because of this beautiful reality that is painted for the United States of America. I do not celebrate the 4th of July because this has been our entire history, just to make that clear today. Because the very signers of this were ones who were holding slaves. The very ones who signed this were the ones who wouldn't have let me vote because I didn't own property. And it wasn't until late in the 19th century when everybody, when when at least a majority of people were enabled to vote, or 20th century. But this is worth celebrating, is it not? To celebrate this ideal that we hold this to be self-evident, that everybody is created equal, that we all have unalienable rights from our creator. Notice what it goes on to promise. When we have this attitude that, that is unselfish, that's looking out for the needs of others, You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes when we think about the world spinning out of control, we think about a time of trouble coming. We think about, how am I going to make it through the end? We begin to think, what can I do to prepare? In fact, people that aren't even aware of what the Bible is saying are thinking more and more about this. You'll see advertisements by companies that'll say, hey, we'll get you this box of food that'll feed you for three months and you can have it in the shelf in your closet. And then we'll give you this thing of seeds so that you can plant your own garden and, and you'll have people that are, are self-sustained and they're, they're figuring out, how am I going to provide for me in the end? And don't get me wrong, I think having a garden is amazing. That's why we have this farm here. And our goal with that farm is to bless you, to bless the community with fresh local produce that will be available whether the food system crashes or not. That's a good thing to do, right? It's an it's a, it's a admirable thing to do, especially if it is focused on ministering to other people. And look at the promise when we're having this unselfish heart of Jesus, that character of the lamb implanted on us. Verse 16 says, he will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. And this is in the context of the time of trouble. If you look at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 33, it says that this is in the midst of the time of trouble. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. You can trust that if if you're choosing to participate in the character of a God of love and justice, if you're choosing to put others' needs before your own, that God will take care of you in the end. And you don't have to start worrying about how to provide for you because that is selfishness. That is the character of the beast that you need to be watching out for. Verse 17 then makes this incredible promise. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. I want to see the king in his beauty, don't you? I want to see Jesus for all of his glory, for all of his beauty, for all of his majesty, for all of his self-sacrificing love. I want to recognize that more fully and let it change me from the inside out. So how do we see the king? Matthew 25, Jesus gives this parable about when he comes in his glory. He says, when the king sits on his throne, he divides up the nations between the sheep and the goats. And notice what he says to the sheep on his right hand. Then the king will say to them, I was hungry. And you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Notice what the righteous answer. Oh, sorry. I must have skipped that part in here. I didn't add that slide. The next verse, they answer and they say, King, 
When did we see you? Do you want to see the king in his beauty? You want to recognize where he's at? He might not be where you expect him to be. He might be out there thirsty. He might be out there hungry. He might be a foreigner, a stranger. He might be out working in the field. He might be somebody that has less than you have. He might be somebody in desperate need. And Jesus gives the picture that the judgment hangs upon one thing. And that is what we have done for those in need, for those who are suffering and for the poor. Goes on to say, The king will answer, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he goes on to talk about the goats and how they didn't do the exact same thing and how they didn't see him when he was going through that. It wasn't like they were actively participating in some gross sins. It wasn't like they were going out and living the life. They just weren't ministering to the needs of those around them. And Jesus says, Inasmuch as you didn't do it to me, to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And then he says, Depart from me into the unquenchable fire. That reality that I miss Jesus will be like an unquenchable fire in our soul. The guilt of recognizing that Jesus was all around me. His, he was walking down the street. He was barefoot in Paso Robles and he, he was addicted and I thought he doesn't deserve my help. He was homeless and I passed him by. He was my neighbor and he was a real pain in the neck. And so I said, I don't want anything to do with him. But I saw him in need and I passed him by. Friends, this is urgent. It's important that we begin to participate in the kingdom of heaven now. Because God wants for you and I to be able to dwell with the consuming fire. To be a part of a kingdom of consuming love where nothing else can exist throughout eternity where we are free to love and to give and there is no more devil to to, to bother us anymore. And he wants that character to become a part of us today. Steps to Christ summarizes it in this beautiful way. Just capture this with me because there is hope for you. If you're sitting here today thinking, man, that sounds totally different than me. Watch this. The sinner could not be happy in God's presence. He would shrink from the companionship of holy beings. Could he be permitted into heaven? It would have no joy for him. There's a picture of a God who's trying to keep people out. But that's not the picture in the Bible. The picture in the Bible is of a God who says, if you would be happy here, you could come in. In Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the gates of the city are wide open. (laughs) Why don't the wicked come in? They know that they wouldn't be happy there. The spirit of unselfish love that reigns there. Every heart responding to the heart of infinite love would touch no answering cord in his soul. I don't want to be a part of that kind of kingdom. I don't want to live in that type of reality. His thoughts, his interests, his motives would be alien to those that actuate the sinless dwellers there. He would be like a foreigner. He wouldn't be able to stand being in this world where people are only looking out for others and and you can't be selfish. He wouldn't want anything to do with that. He would be a discordant note in the melody of heaven. Notice this. Heaven, where does that say? Let's, let's make sure you're listening. Heaven, where, where, would be, where would it be? Heaven would be to him a place of what? Torture. Heaven itself would be a place of torture for this individual. 
He would long to be hidden from him who is its light and the center of its joy. It is no arbitrary decree on the part of God that excludes the wicked from heaven. They are shut out by their own unfitness for its companionship. Like we saw two weeks ago, like uh, C.S. Lewis talks about, our choices day in and day out are either making us more of a hellish creature or a heavenly creature, more of a selfish creature or more of a loving creature, more like Jesus or more like the beast, more like Satan. The glory of God would be to them a consuming fire. Notice this. They would, what is that word? They would what? They would welcome destruction. (laughs) We have this picture that that God is coming with force to destroy the wicked in order to create some kind of utopia. But the reality is that in his mercy, in his grace, he's going to allow the wicked to be put out of their misery with what the Bible tells us is a consuming fire. And as they are destroyed by that fire, they will welcome that destruction. There's no picture of of people writhing in hell in some basement with devils poking them throughout eternity. That is so contrary to the picture of who God is. They would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from the face of him who died to redeem them. Psalm 39 gives us this picture. It says what this fire is like in our bodies. It says, I was mute with silence, the psalmist is saying. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. When when I refused to talk about my sin, when I refused to confess, there is a way to a new life, and that is to confess our sins and to turn to Jesus. It goes on to say, my heart was hot within me. While I was musing about this guilt, this shame, all of this self-condemnation, The fire burned in my soul. I was burning up inside. But notice what it says in verse 11. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. I recognize that there is nothing good in me. But Psalm 32, at the beginning of the chapter, says that when we confess our sins, that we are free, that we're set free from this sorrow, this inner turmoil that takes place. Friends, we're invited today to turn to Jesus. So a couple weeks ago, maybe it was a month ago, um, grandma was giving our girls a bath in the bathtub. And as she's giving them this bath in the bathtub, I I walked past the door and she said, Zach, what is this? And she pointed to one of my girls, one of my daughter's arms. And she said, maybe it was a bite, maybe it was something like that. I said, you know what? That's a bite. (laughs) That looks like her sister got a hold of her. <laughs> well, we didn't do much about it, and we, we went on about our day. And then later, um, Leah came home, and she, w- Grandma was pointing it out to her, and she said, okay, we've got to figure this out. We've got to figure out what it is. There was a spot in the center. We wanted to make sure it wasn't some other type of bite. And so we took her to the doctor. Um, but before that happened, um, Leah ended up saying to the girls, girls, did one of you bite the other? They were just silent. <laughs> they weren't willing to, to say anything. You know, when we hold back from confessing what's gone on in our lives, it eats us up inside. But you know what enables us to confess, what enables us to turn? It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And when Leah said, girls, look, if somebody bit somebody, there's not going to be, you're not going to be in trouble. I just need to know so that I can know that your sister's going to be okay. 
And immediately, confession came out. Yeah, we were fighting over the hose, and, and she bit me. And the, the other one said, yeah, I bit her. <laughs> because they knew that there's mercy, there's forgiveness, there's grace. If your heart is sealed to Jesus today, it is because you don't recognize that he is the king in all of his beauty of mercy and grace and love, that his arms are wide open, he's already died for your sins. Just turn and live. Look and live. Turn to Jesus. So how many of you want to burn forever? I want to invite you, if you'd like to burn forever, if you want to see the king in his beauty, as we meditate on this song, I want you to just think about that moment of seeing him in all of his glory. But don't forget that we can see him today in the least of these around us. Thank you, Jesus. You are our Savior and our Lord. You are the King of kings, and we want to see you in all of your beauty. Thank you that we're going to see you one day soon. Father, help us not to pass you by on the street corner today, in our neighbor, in our boss, in our coworker. Help us to recognize you in our fellow church members, the people around us. Help us to see you in your beauty as you are reaching out in love to every part of this human family. Lord God, Would you help us to open our hearts to you? Would you help us to confess our sins today? Thank you for revealing that we're all headed for the same unveiled view of the glory of the almighty, infinite king of the universe. Lord, prepare our hearts for that day now. May you take care of the sin in our hearts today. Help us to confess and to turn to trust in your goodness because you have already died our sins. Thank you for your infinite love, your incredible forgiveness. Thank you for being our king. Thank you for dispelling all of the lies that Satan tried to cast upon you. Lord, thank you that the truth will set us free. May we recognize this truth more and more and be set free more and more completely. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.